This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. Coming up on this episode, we'll discuss family planning. Except I'll tell you what, why I think this is a weirder thing is because it almost was the idea, it's like, are we allowed to have sex without having a baby? Then we'll talk with Chabad of Cancun Rebbitzin, Rachel Druk, about how she gives women access to mikvah in the ocean. A lot of times, like after the woman is finished, I kind of like point the, to the sky and I say, look, there's no barrier now between you and Hashem. It's open. It's like that moment where you could really just connect. It's very spiritual. And finally, the final word. That's all coming up after this quick word from our sponsor. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovavet Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason, you're a rabbi in training. What's your perspective? It was precisely the musmachim of Yeshivat Chovavet Torah that drew me to the yeshiva. The tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to yctorah.org. Hi there, it's Bacheva. And before we get to the main episode, I just wanted to talk to you for a minute about a podcast that Dove and I were on. It's called Talking Tachlis. It's a cool new podcast. And they had an episode recently with me and Dove called Let's Talk About Sex, a conversation with the host of the Joy of Text. So that would be us. And Dove and I had an opportunity to talk a little bit about what it's like to make this podcast, the things that we struggle with, um, some of the things that we kind of butt bump against. You might get a kick out of listening to it. So again, you might want to check it out. Welcome back to the Joy of Text. I'm Sarah Rosner Lawrence, and I'm here with Dr. Bacheva Marcus, Clinical Director of Maze Women's Health, and Rabbi Dove Linzer, Rosh Hashivan President of Yeshiva Chovavei Torah. Hi. Hi. You know what? Before we get started, I just need to say I'm working really hard to get onto social media. I don't know. Some people may know I have a book coming out in a year with Hachette Books, and I've been on social media, and I'm like, I'm there constantly at Dr. Bacheva Marcus, either on Facebook or Instagram. And so you guys should follow me, and you should also give me feedback because I need all the help I can get. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, follow Dr. Marcus. Um, okay, cool. So our, our topic today is family planning. And I know we've had at least one episode in the past about birth control, but this is really like a broader topic about how to approach family planning more generally, like the decision-making process of how many kids to have, when to be on birth control, how how the decision about being on birth control gets made. Um, so I actually wanted to start off with the issue of how the decision to go on birth control gets made, because I was always taught um, coming from like a more kind of centrist, orthodox perspective that um, before you go on birth control, you have to ask a Shiloh, right? You, you have to mm -hmm. sort of have this like halachic consultation with your rabbi and like get permission to go on birth control. Mm -hmm. So Rabbi Linzer, um, what, what are some of the like halachic considerations behind that? Like why is that sort of the popular like conception right conception. No, 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 no pun, pun intended, intended. <laughs> yeah. a lot of misconceptions here so family planning is really the question of pur vu right there's a mitzvah to have children and uh there's a debate how many is it two boys or a boy and a girl we will it's a boy and a girl um and then there's an idea to have even more after you have a boy and a girl so in a certain level you know there it makes sense that there would be a halachic question which is if you want to frame it in halachic terms can i postpone doing this mitzvah? How many kids am I supposed to have? Um, and um, But, you know, it is worth saying that these are very recent questions because the whole concept of family planning, you know, only became really possible once there was the pill and once there was highly effective means of birth control. Other than that, before that, people tried. I mean, there were early forms of the condom and so on. But uh, the, re the real ability to much more precisely control how many kids you're going to have and when you're going to have them really is a very recent phenomenon. Is that not true, Bacheva? No, it's 100% true. And I, I was sort of struck because as we were thinking about doing this, I was thinking back, like, so I got married, I don't know, 36 years ago, a long time ago, <laughs> where I'm ancient. And... Um, and, you know, good religious couple, when we first got married, we went to the person who was going to be a Marsada Kedushin, and we asked him if we could use birth control. And he said yes, and he gave us like a heter for a year, two years, I don't remember. And then we were supposed to come back and ask again. And I, by the time that year was over, it had hit me that it was so ridiculous that we mm -hmm. were asking somebody else if we should be having kids. Like, right. And now, 36 years later, and I, I, I think a lot has changed about this, 
the idea that somebody else would be able to have the um, authority to power. Yeah. Or like to try to get into your head to understand like where you guys are at and whether or not it's appropriate for you to have kids is is a little bit mind boggling to me. And I, I'm just curious, like where did the idea even come? Like why do people feel like they had to ask? Like where did that even come from, this idea that you had to ask? Yeah. Like I, I, I mean, I'm not a historian, so I don't know like, you know, how this exactly evolved. But I will say if you moved from a time when the idea was you you naturally have kids and you have as many kids as you're naturally going to produce. And, you know, the Gemara says that it's anybody who does not involve themselves in purvu and you know, procreation is as if they took a life because, you know, it's preventing life from coming into the world. So there's a lot of weight that's put on that. And then you realize, oh, my gosh, now I have the ability to control it. So I think that naturally leads to a sense of like, wait a minute, is this permissible or not? Oh, permissible? So it was an area of halacha that started to change the same way like, you know, IVF changed and raised a whole bunch of questions. This raised a whole bunch of questions. Yes, I, exactly it, that. Yeah. Except the, like a new reality coming correct. into the world it was a new sort of like pushing halacha to, to address. Start address these questions. Except I'll tell you what, why I think this is a weirder thing is because it almost was the idea. It's like, are we allowed to have sex without having a baby? Right. right? Like, no, it's, that was the question young couples were asking exactly. Like we're, they weren't having sex before they were married, at least theoretically they weren't having sex. And, but now is it, is it okay for us to have sex but not have a baby. Right. Out so of it's the really center. a question about sex. It's not a question of pru or vu. Sort of. Yeah. So I think that that's exactly what's happening. Meaning, I don't know if that's initially why the question was asked. You know, I have a halachic mind, so I am always assuming it's being asked from the pru or vu perspective. But I think that the way the rabbis deal with it, I um, because if you think about it in purely halachic terms, you have a mitzvah to do. Why do you assume that you have to do it at the first available second? Like, you know, I like, okay, there's an idea Correct. to do mitzvah earlier rather than later. But if I want to wait and take lulav later in the day, you know, or I'm doing a bris, so ideally I do it in the morning. But if I'm waiting for an uncle to come in and I want to do it at 3 p.m., I'm allowed to wait and do it at 3 p.m. So why can't I wait to have kids? You know, so I think that a major part of the answer is exactly what you said, that rabbis were afraid that people would disconnect sex from procreation and sex would just be about sex. And I think that that like informed a lot of why they were giving the answers but, they were giving. I mean, I, I kind of question that though, because, you know, there's a whole stage of life, like after, after menopause, where mm -hmm. sex is just about sex. And I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I I thought that there were like numerous sources talking yes. about how like Ona, you know, the 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 um, mitzvah to give your wife pleasure still totally applies even after childbirth isn't possible anymore. If a woman, you know, becomes unable to have children after a certain point, right? So yeah. you don't have to go so far as menopause. I mean, most women are not going to have as many babies as they possibly can have between the right. time they start having intercourse and marriage and the time that they can no longer have babies. Like you're not going to have 12 babies. Most people are not going to have 12 babies. Most people are going to have three, four, if you live in right. Israel, four or five. So, so again, like the question is like, why have to time that immediately when you get married as opposed to afterwards? So that's exactly. question number one. And, and the idea of divorcing sex, like it would seem like it would be good to divorce the sex from, <laughs> from your perspective. But right. I, I will tell you, I heard a rabbi explicitly say this as that I tell the couple that I will only allow them to use birth control after they've already had their first kid because they have to understand that sex is about having kids and it's not just about having fun. So, okay, but so, that's terrible. I know it's terrible. <laughs> but if you're asking, what do I think is yes, behind okay. it? I, but I want to give you a, a proof that it's not really about Puravu. I mean, again, proof, at least for some people. I know somebody who basically want, wanted to get married, but they couldn't, you know, start having kids for two years because she was in school, he was in school. So they asked the rabbi what to do. And the rabbi said, well, wait two years to get married. So I said to even though she wanted to get married oh right my, away. Seriously? Yeah, they, yeah, because they couldn't have kids. So I said, you understand that whether you get married now and use birth control or wait two years and get married, you're not having kids for the next two years. So what difference does it make, right? From the perspective yes. of Puravu, you're waiting two years to start having kids. Right. So it's really, for a lot of these rabbis, it's really about exactly what you sensed, a question of sex without procreation, you know, that that's at the core. But that's it, a little horrifying. I know. It's so fascinating, though. So um, <sighs> we, we were chatting about this a little bit before we started the episode, mm -hmm. but I recall, I am a graduate of Stern College, um, and I remember my 
my um, Rebbe from from college. I hope he is not going to be mad that I'm I'm talking about this. But there were like, <laughs> it was very public. It. it was yeah. totally public. So and he's my, a hero. As far as he's, he's amazing. Yeah. So 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 Rabbi Khan, um, who was my like Gemara Rebbe in Stern, um, he he gave a lecture um, in Stern about why he believes that asking a Shila before going on birth control is not necessary. Um, and basically like putting forth this, like at, at, like at that time and place, like very radical notion that couples should be empowered to make the decision about using birth control on their own. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in that lecture as a student and just like seeing the responses of my fellow students in the room, um, was just so, so interesting to me because I was sitting there like, yeah, this is great. And like some of my fellow students were sitting there being like, this is scandalous, right? And like, like I can't believe he's saying this right now. And like there were articles about it and, you know, it kind of became like this, this like hot topic for, for a little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that like there's something there in terms of just this visceral sense that you know, birth control is something that is like pushing a boundary in some way that like mm-hmm. the, the like halachic Jewish family default almost is like you get married, you immediately start having kids. And like to, to, to do otherwise is to sort of like introducing this hedonistic. Like, yeah. Like just, just inappropriate. Like, like just that there's something like wrong with it. Right. Look, I would also say that sometimes it's the, the people that are asking these questions that are like the, you know, from couples that have not engaged in sex before. And um, sometimes, you know, sometimes what's pushing them to get married is a desire to have sex. And sometimes they break up early on. So if they have a kid in the equation, it's actually much worse, you know. So I think that like, uh, it's just for the health of the couple, you don't want to start having kids. You want to wait till they've actually connected to one another in a meaningful way. I want to just shift the conversation a little because I'm curious about this. Mm-hmm. So you've sort of said, generally speaking, Purvu is is um, defined as one boy, one girl. And yet we do sort of encourage from families to have more than one boy and one girl. So is there any guideline in terms of – like kids are good, Purvu is good. Like right. I'm trying to get like – there's an ethos of having more right. kids, but halakhically are there – more sources? Is there more discussion of this? Yes, yes. So, well, I'll answer that, but I sort of swinging from the previous question, because I I do think the other thing that is pushing rap, I mean, this drives me crazy, you know, exactly this point you were saying, Sarah, about do you want to empower the couple or do you feel that the rabbi has to have control? And then when the rabbi says, come back and I'll give you a heter for another Ugh. year, another two years, it's like, did we become the Catholic church? We're handing out dispensations. Like, you know, why don't you just tell me the halachic parameters and I'll make my decision, you know? So, but I think it's Yay. that there, <laughs> That was exactly his perspective. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think what it is, is that the rabbis are afraid that people... Like, if I tell you, I can't trust you, you know, you're going to make a decision that is because you're uh, not going to have as many kids as the halacha wants you to have, because it is a big sacrifice to have a lot of kids in terms of time and money and all of those things. And there is a whole ethos. And if I just let you make your own decision, you won't make a responsible decision. So I'm going to have to control it for you. That's also what I somehow think is part of that dynamic. It's a lack of trust of the people that are asking. Um, and that gets to this question about how many kids are are you supposed to have, right? So the Gemara definitely says that there's a mitzvah, even though you fulfill the mitzvah with a boy and a girl, there's a mitzvah to have, to keep on having kids. Um, but it's, the whole question, is it a rabbinic mitzvah? Is it not even such a mitzvah at all? Is it a fuller fulfillment of the biblical mitzvah of Purvu? But, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why life circumstances could justify not keeping on having kids. And that a couple, once, you know, they've done certainly the biblical mitzvah, is entitled to make those types of judgments on their own. Um, but I think rabbis are exactly afraid that they won't make them responsibly. That is so interesting. That is really interesting. So I know a rabbi who said that a couple came to him and said, and they already had a few kids, and they said, Rabbi, should we have another kid? So he said, I'm not going to tell you that. That's a decision for you to make. So no, Rabbi, we want to know. So he said, look, let's do some learning together that relates to this. Okay, so they learned for, you know, over a few weeks. And then, and then, they, and then you know, and then he said, now make your decision. So he said, no, Rabbi, should we have another kid? <laughs> <laughs> so said, let's learn some more. So they learned some more for a few more weeks, and then, they, and then they, and then after they were done learning, they came back and said, Rabbi, should we have another kid? So he said, at that stage, he said, I thought to myself, they need an answer. I like kids, and I'm not going to have to raise this one. So I told them to have sure. another kid. 
And did they? And they did, and they named him after the rabbi. Wow. <laughs> That's a real story? Yes. So, oh, my God. I mean, I, the truth is, really I feel hilarious. like that has to do with the rabbi being a little bit able to hear. Because mm-hmm. if a couple's coming and saying to him, should we have another kid? I think I would say to them, tell me what your hesitations are. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, having another kid is a good thing. And it sounds like they wanted him to tell them to have another kid. Right. Like somehow they needed permission. Yeah, that's a good point. That's really interesting. <laughs> it's definitely not the way I would run my life, but very interesting approach. Um, yeah. So I, I guess like like an adjacent issue to this is like when and how couples make the decision to stop having kids. Um, like let's say they've had three or four kids and the woman is still, you know, in her in her like 30s. mid-30s or whatever, and um they're like, Okay, we're done. So could we talk for, for a little bit about like that that halachic decision? So I think something I want to say here, most couples I know don't decide on a certain number of kids and then have that number of kids. Like sometimes you have a fantasy of how many n- numbers of kids you'd like to have and then you have one and then you maybe have another one and then you maybe have another one. At some point you realize for whatever reason you're done sure. and um, either because – it it was the kids are different than you expected. Um, you know, it's harder to raise the kids than you expected. You were having a much harder time having the kids. The births were super complicated. Your financial situation gets to a point where you feel like you can't handle anymore. Um, I, I feel like it is often a um, it's an evolving decision. It's not like a final decision. I remember Anna Quinlan, who's a beautiful writer, talking about how she finally put away the baby clothes in the attic and how painful that was for her. After she had baby number three, she kept them out for a long time because she kept thinking, am I going to have another one? Am I going to have another one? And at some point she realized, I really am not going to have another one. So I, I don't think for most couples, it's like a totally final decision. I do like to tell the story that after my number two, we had three kids, but after number two was born and I was really, really overwhelmed, it was a couple of weeks after he was born. I said to my husband, I don't ever want to talk about ever having another kid. And my husband looked at me and said, sweetie, we really don't have to talk about this now because like we just had a baby like two mm-hmm. weeks ago. And I was like, don't even say that because that means at some point we're going to talk about it. And there's no way we're going to have another kid. Anyway, and obviously we did many years later. So, but there was illness and there was all kinds of reasons why there was a big space between baby number two and baby number three. Yeah, I want to actually say that I know a rabbi. Another story with a rabbi. I know. <laughs> I know, you know a, ra- a lot of rabbis. I know a lot of rabbis. I know a rabbi that got up one Shabbos and he gave a sermon, and the sermon was about how. Now, he, this is a rabbi that everybody in his synagogue basically has two kids, and he's got like I think six or seven. Um, anyway, he got up and he gave a sermon about how sometimes we make a decision which was right at the time that we made it. And then from that point on, we're just going on autopilot on the basis of that earlier decision without ever rethinking it. And he gave the example of choosing to go on birth control. Maybe that was right at the time, but do we ever think like, should we still be using birth control or maybe we should be having more kids? Well, Needless to say, nine months after the sermon, there were a lot of births in the community. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. That is such a sweet story. Yeah, yeah. That is such a sweet story. I actually wanted to approach a – like, I want to flip this on its head for one second, which is when women go off birth control and are trying to get pregnant, the panic attacks people get way too fast when they're not getting pregnant. And I think one of the things that's happened over the years is we've told women, don't have sex because you're going to get pregnant. You don't have sex because you may get pregnant. And make sure you're always using birth control because you may get pregnant. And then what women kind of hear, the subliminal message in addition to that is as soon as you don't use birth control, you're going to get pregnant. And right. so I watch women, and I feel like it, this has really shifted in the last you know 20 years. I watch it. Women think that they can co- totally decide exactly when they're going to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And they're up for a rude awakening. You know, like I, I see women, they're like, they're between the residency and like the second year and third year, they have a three-week break that they're going to plan to have that baby in that three weeks. Like, you know what, we we have a lot more control than we used to, but we are nowhere near having full control. Like there is God is still part of this whole mm-hmm. this whole story. And I feel like it's a really rude awakening for young women as a so what happens is either they think they're gonna plan to have a baby at this like ridiculous juncture that they think they have full control, and they may, but they well very well may not, or they starts to try to get pregnant. Now it's three months in and they're panicking. Oh my God, I must be having infertility issues. Uh, It's three months. Most people say a year. You wait a Mm -hmm, year. mm -hmm. If you're in, you know, your 20s, you can wait a year. 
before you go see an infertility doctor, not everybody gets pregnant immediately. So I feel like that's the flip side of us having a little bit more control has been making people feel like they have total control. And I don't Mm. know that that's super helpful in our society. No, I definitely hear that. I mean, I think like as, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking back to a few months ago when we aired our infertility episode, you know, and just kind of thinking about like family planning as a plan, right? But it's, it's just not how the reality always works out. And also just kind of like holding space and, and, and recognizing that, you know, there are people who had a, a, very clear like family planning plan um mm-hmm. and are are for for various reasons not not able to to have as many kids as they were hoping for so i'm wondering like from the flip side you know we talked about the rabbi's anxiety that people won't make the right decisions but you know this is like one area of halacha that dictates major aspects of your life i mean how many children, how many human lives you're going to bring into the world, what your, you know, what your life is going to look like. And it's, you know, it's not a by chance that the modern Orthodox community in the States has a lot fewer children, you know, than the Dati Lumi community in Israel based on, I think, something having to do with norms and values and so on. So, and also money. And like money, right. That's true. Because, yeah, $100,000, you know, each, whatever, what is it, a million dollars a kid to send them 12 years through to a day school, a day school yeah. or something. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So I guess I wonder from that, like, what do you think about that, about the whole dynamic that plays out specifically around family planning with sort of autonomy and the control, you know, the demands of halacha? Well, I think more the question is autonomy versus social control, which we don't even pay attention to. Like Mm -hmm. I always joke around that I have three kids and I feel fine about it. But when I go to Israel within a month of being in Israel, less now that I'm older, but I used to start feeling really defensive about Mm -hmm. the fact that I had three kids. Like that was the only time I'd go to Israel – and within a couple of weeks, I'd be talking to people and they'd say, how many kids? And I'd be like, well, three, but like my husband had cancer. Like I, f- I feel like I sort of had to justify it. And I realized that the, the reality of what people's expectations are have played such a role in what you ultimately do. And I don't know if as a community we've done such a great job in terms of lowering expectations, both because of cost of children and because of, you know, it's hard having a bunch of kids. And, you know, we have expectations for very like high functioning life. So sometimes I think that we might have missed out a little bit. On the other hand, I do feel like large families, the kids don't always get all the attention that they need. And Mm -hmm. that's also not great. Mm -hmm. But do you feel that, let's say it wasn't a rabbi trying to control, let's say it was halacha said, you have to have, you know, four kids and da 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 da, whatever halacha said, how would you feel about the fact that halacha was dictating something that central to your life? Are you kidding me? We have um, halacha dictates how how we how often we have sex. Halacha mm-hmm. dictates what we have to do before we have sex, and halacha dictates what we can eat. I mean, I think if that was the reality and it wasn't just being introduced, nobody would ask two questions about mm-hmm. it. If halacha mm-hmm. said you have to have four kids, then you know, unless something else, you know, right. there's some reason not to, we'd all just have four kids, mm-hmm. don't you think, Sarah? I mean, I do think that there's something different about having kids than even like all of the other th- things that that halacha dictates, you know, having like the number of kids you have, right. As, as you were saying, just impacts your financial well-being, impacts your, like the amount of time you, you have impacts your career moves, like just all like, so, so does everything so many else. Different does, things. Does, like living in an Orthodox community, sending your kids to day school, going to shul every day. Like those things all have huge impacts on your life. Eating kosher, right? I think what about Deborah saying is we don't feel we have choices about those because we they've become normalized, right? So and yeah, and maybe this is still an area we feel we have choice about. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, but but that having been said, right? Like, isn't isn't the ideal to have one boy and one girl? And you, you still see people making choices. Right, not that way. Not to, right? Like maybe they've had three kids and they're like, they're all girls, but just can't can't have another one. And like, that's it, you know? I I do think in the Orthodox community, it's hard to make that decision. I think people who have one gender tend to have more. I've noticed that, like, Mm, you know, I've also noticed that five girls, four boys. (laughs) And I think it's probably a combination of things. Either halakhically, they feel like they haven't totally fulfilled what they have to. And also people like the idea of having two genders. Mm -hmm. So you were speaking before about the issue about the ability to make choice about postponing when you're going to have kids and all those issues. And I want to just be clear. I laid out 
that the approach which Rabbi Khan laid out, which is that you can decide when to have kids. That should be your decision. You should just can decide how many kids to have after you've had the boy and the girl. A lot of life circumstances can inform how many total kids you want to have. But clearly there are other poskim who say that, you know, all of those are questions that have to be asked to a rav and that there's a very serious criteria that have to be met in order to allow those things. So I just want to make a clear disclaimer about that. that Wait, so, you, so you want to make clear that there are people who do feel that way, that yeah. those are qu- that we're taking the assumption that these are things you don't have to ask, but there are a lot of people in the orthodox who do think that they have to be, yeah. and we don't yeah. want to minimize the fact that there are a lot of post-game who feel like this is an important question Correct. for us to, to, to bring to post-game. Okay, so one last question, um, just to kind of raise, as long as we're talking about this, is at the point at which a couple has decided that they are done having kids about, you know, more like permanent birth control options or, or longer term birth control options. By permanent, you mean I like mean, a vasectomy? Yeah, like yeah. just, or just raising the ligation. question yeah, mm-hmm. of things like vasectomy or tubal ligation or I don't know what other like cutting edge medical options well, there are out are there. are the two options <laughs> that are pretty permanent. <laughs> cutting edge. <laughs> <laughs> That's no twice there. <laughs> Halachically, it's complicated. The uh, there's a biblical prohibition of of castration. Um, it's almost universally accepted that that would apply to a vasectomy. Um, although I think that there are one or two poskim that say because it's all beneath the skin that maybe that would not be the biblical violation, but it's generally understood to be a biblical violation. So that's really except under really extreme circumstances. Um, pretty that's much a no. Pretty, pretty much a no. I d- have heard a discussion in, in in some exceptional circumstances that you know the man having the vasectomy done to him is not the one that's doing the vasectomy, and the actual prohibition is to do the vasectomy. So if the doctor isn't Jewish, you know, some people are like, like exploring that as a possible option. The other thing that's kind of interesting is, in general, if a guy decides to have a vasectomy, I we always recommend that they bang their sperm because you never know what's going to happen. They may change their mind. They want to have a baby. But what's really interesting about that is that you you could have um, a vasectomy and not finish your provo. Like you could bank all your sperm, right. have a vasectomy, and still have like 10 kids. Yeah, but the prohibition is not because it gets in the way of pure vu. It's, got a, it. it's, an, it's, it's its own prohibition, of, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. The tubal ligation actually is is less of an issue because there's a whole question whether this prohibition of castration applies, you know, in somewhat degree of parallel in the case of a woman. Um, and uh, so it, I, from what I understand, that's a much more complicated uh, procedure. It um, is. Yeah. No, and nobody, almost nobody uses tubal ligation uh-huh, as a birth control uh-huh. method. But, yeah. Luckily, it's less of an issue. Not right. that it's not an issue, but it's less of an issue. Right. And, and obviously, a lot of women end up getting some kind of IUD at the point at which they're done having kids, although yeah, now IUD, people are using can, them earlier. Yeah, an IUD is a great form of birth control. You can use it, you know, they like to put it in for five years just because of the cost, but it's not that expensive. So even if you want to use an IUD for a year, we're pushing more and more women to do it because it doesn't have a lot of the hormonal impact that um, the birth control pills do. As a matter of fact, I was thinking maybe women should start getting IUDs like before, significantly before they get married when they're dating because mm. any problems you have in terms of staining and, you know, usually that's the first six, 12 months. So like, why have that once you're married? Like, why mm. not do it earlier? Well, that goes back to our earlier discussion because IUDs, you don't, they don't come out so easily, right? It's not trivial to take them out. It is. Oh, it is? It totally is. You okay. yank it out, you start I mean, getting pregnant. You have to go to a doctor to have it removed. Uh-huh. You have to go to a doctor, but yeah. they pull it out basically. And and you, and you as opposed to birth control pills where it takes months for your body to get back to a normal state, uh-huh. the IUD, you yank it out, theoretically, you could get pregnant the next day. So if somebody only wanted to be on birth control for a year, they, yes, would, they would do a body. Yes, it's just a cost issue. It's, just huh. a, it's merely a cost issue. And then also it's a little painful to put it in, but we're talking like a day or two of you huh. know cramping. But now they have much smaller ones, so even that's not an issue. Huh. So more and more, IUDs are becoming sort of the, the, the birth control of choice. And the worst thing for Orthodox women is that often they're staining with it. Mm. You know, you could have like a couple months of staining, and that's really, really disruptive. But if you do it before you're even married, like, go for it. it. Just a thought. So that was a little tangent. Yep. (laughs) Next up, we'll hear from Rebbitzin Rachel Druk. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. 
At Maze Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Maze is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mazehealth.com. Joining us today is Rebitson Rachel Druk, Rebitson of Chabad of Cancun. Rachel has been in the very unique position of empowering and enabling women to use the mikvah by guiding them to dunk in the ocean. Rachel, we're so excited to be speaking with you today. Hi, I wish I could be there with you guys. You know, I need to say how excited I am to have Rachel because I think maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, my husband and I started going to Cancun for a couple days a year and there was no way to get kosher food. And Rachel and the Chabad used to drop off kosher food at our hotel and we would get it heated up at the hotel. And so that's kind of how I got to know Rachel. And then maybe four years ago when our kids were grown and out of the house, we started going for Shabbos. And so then we actually started going to the Chabad in Cancun on Shabbat. And I met Rachel and I just fell in love with Rachel. She's amazing. And um, it has just been like, it makes me like, if I don't, go to Cancun one year, I feel like, oh, I'm not going to get to see Rachel. So we're really, we're really excited to have you, Rachel. The feeling is mutual, Batsheva. It's the same. When you don't come visit me, I get sad too. I just want to tell anybody who's listening, Cancun is the easiest kosher vacation to go on. It's beautiful. It's a very short flight from, certainly from New York. And there's abundant kosher food there now. So, and Chabad on Shabbat is awesome, right? Rachel, anything else you want to add to the advertisement for Cancun? This is great. We're going to have so many people come visit us now. But no, it's true. We have a lot of kosher restaurants now, a lot of kosher options. We don't have a mikveh yet, but uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, indeed. So I actually just wanted to start off by asking you, um, when did you first start using the ocean as a mikveh? And what was that decision process like for you? Like how like how did how did that come to be? So before we moved to Cancun, I knew that I would have to be using the ocean. Um, we moved about 13 years ago. This is our 13th year here in Cancun. So I remember I was in New York. I remember I was in my tiny apartment in Brooklyn and I called my rabbi and I said, hey, like I'm moving to Cancun. What do I do? And he was so amazing. He was like, you know, the ocean, if it's used right, it could be the best the best mikvah, and he just made me feel so good about it. And he actually told me to call the Chabad Shlucha in Hawaii, who at that point also didn't have a mikvah and had been using the ocean for many, many years. And I did. I called her. We spent like an hour and a half on the phone together, I remember. And uh, she guided me through the whole process. And I was the first person that needed the mikvah, so that was good. Like I had my, I practiced on myself before I took anybody else, so that was really great. And um, yeah, it's been 13 years taking hundreds, if not thousands, of women to the ocean. Wow. Wow. That's so amazing. Do women go in the ocean naked or a loose fitting garment? How do you uh, handle that? So for the most part, um, the way I do it is that they're in their bathing suit when we go in, and then once they're covered by the water, they'll take off their bathing suit. And, I'll, and I'm in the water with them, so I'll hold it for them. Some women have gotten, you know, everyone has their halachic authority, so some women, um, very, very few, have gotten permission to wear like a loose-fitting um, t-shirt and then kind of go in in that. But um, again, every, everyone has their own... Um, halachic authorities that they listen to. Wait, but then once they take the bathing suit off, do they try to put it back on while they're in the water? How does that work? Um, so the technicality of it is that, so I go in with them. I, I go in about uh, like mid-thigh, basically. Uh, they're with me. And once they're covered, like they have to like kind of sit down uh, like up to their neck. Um, they're covered by the water. Then they'll take it off. They'll pass it to me. They'll do the, well, they'll, they'll taivo. And then I'll pass it back to them and they put it on underneath the water and then, you know, we go out. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Very sounds, cool. it sounds really, I mean, the idea of trying to put a bathing suit on in the water sounds overwhelming to me, but it probably depends on the complexity <laughs> of the bathing suit. <laughs> yeah. I would have imagined that it would serve um, as somewhat of a, in a uh, you know, unf- informal halachic authority you, because you, there were questions would come up, they would ask you, but it's sounding like yeah. they're planning for it and they're asking their own rabbis. How's that working out? So it depends. Like sometimes, for example, like a woman will show up and she'll have 
uh, like a bracelet from a hotel that's all inclusive. And I'll be like, oh my goodness. And, and you know, there won't be time to, to call her rabbi or whatever. So I'll call, you know, I'll call my, my rabbi really quickly and see what, what, you know, what we can do about that, you know, over the years, like I'll know some of the answers already to the, to the questions. But a lot of times they'll ask me beforehand if they have certain questions and I'll be like, ask your rub. And if they say, oh, I don't have one, I'll be like, okay, I'll ask mine. For the most part though, um, you know, women will, they will ask their rub beforehand. There's a lot of cases sometimes like a woman wants to go um, like before Shabbos, you know, like right before Shabbos starts. And I usually just say, you know, ask your rabbi. If your rabbi says it's okay, then I'll take you. Um, so different things like that. Interesting. And just another kind of like logistical question. You're doing this at night, right? So how does, how does that work in terms of like sharks safety? (laughs) Like are the, are there uh, like our beaches open? Are you going to like a, just a private beach? Like how does this work? The first thing I did when I actually moved here was during the day, like I scouted out different places that were good. And if you know Cancun a little bit, it's kind of in the shape of an L. So the, the, um, the south side is very wavy. It's like massive, massive waves that come crashing down. But the north side, like when you make that turn to the top part of the L, um, it's like an upside down, you know, like a seven kind of. When you make that turn, there's an island across from us called Isla Mujeres, and it actually blocks all of the waves. So that part of the ocean is completely calm, almost like a pool. And I searched out different different locations. There's a lot of public entrances, which obviously have a lot of people there. Um, so I found like a really great spot. Over the years, I've changed spots multiple times, but right now I have a really good spot where it's private homes. So there's hardly anybody on the beach. It's usually very very quiet, and the water is extremely extremely calm. So there's not any you know big waves or anything like that. So. Over the years, I've, I've perfected my spot, but um, definitely like figure that out before, you know, if anyone is going to be on a deserted island and is going to need to use the mikvah, you definitely have to go during the day and kind of scout out the location to make sure it's safe and you'll be okay. And, you know, you don't want to go in. Thank God I've, I've been doing it for 13 years. No one, no sharks have ever come out. <laughs> uh, no one has ever gotten bitten or anything like that. Uh, thank God. I did once come to the mikvah because in October there's this thing where the crabs go from the lagoon to the ocean. And I once came to the lagoon and I see these people throwing crabs into the ocean. <laughs> so that was pretty funny, but um, nothing happened to us. <laughs> right. And I, I think the lagoon has alligators, if I'm not mistaken, right? The lagoon has alligators. Definitely do not go into the lagoon. <laughs> <laughs> so is this, is this frightening? Is it like a little bit spooky and scary at night or is it beautiful and lovely? I actually feel like it's such a beautiful experience. That's my personal feeling. Um, you know, you go in the water and there's like an open sky. A lot of times, like after the woman is finished, I kind of like point this to the sky and I say, look, there's no barrier now between you and Hashem. It's open. It's like that moment where you could really just connect. It's very spiritual. Like I find it to be really, really a beautiful experience. Mm. That's amazing. Do people sometimes come to you and not know about the possibility of uh, immersing in the ocean and say, where's the mikvah here? All the time. That's their first question. <laughs> <laughs> and when you tell them we're going to go in the ocean, do they say you got something like you got to be crazy? Or how does that usually go? I get a lot of that. I find especially like New Yorkers, they're like, what? The ocean? No way. Like they're not used to They're not used to that. I have to, I always tell them like I have, I'm, I'm a lifeguard. So like I calm them down a little bit. If the woman is really scared the first thing I need to do is like calm her down so I always just you know I always tell them it's calm the waters are calm there's no waves I always tell them you have to come to my spot I'm not we're not going to do it at your hotel where you see the waves are crashing and things like that first thing I always do is just calm them down because if they're not I've had a few times very few times where the woman has has been like super scared and I've literally had to like hold them in the water and like you know calm them down and talk to them and just like walk them through the whole process like like almost like a child but just kind of just kind of like you know zone them in focus them like you're you're okay I'm here with you like but it's it's been I can count on my fingers like one two three times maybe that the woman has been like very very frightened hmm. wow. hmm. how do how do most of the women you take react to the experience? Like, even if they're a little bit wary at the beginning, like, are most people saying like, wow, that was great. Or like, I want to do it again. Or most people saying like, never again. I feel like it translates to how the woman really feels about Tara Samashbacha in general, which is very interesting. A lot of times when the woman has um, a great feeling for 
for the whole concept of Taras and Mishpacha and their relationship with their husband, I feel like they come out and say, wow, that was amazing. And a lot of times you feel like they come with like this little bit of like a negative attitude. And I feel like that's their whole um, outlook in general about keeping this mitzvah. And so they'll, they'll be a little bit more, again, not very many people, but in, in, in a lot of times I, you know, I walk out and I hold up their hand like a champion. I say like, you did it. You know, they feel, they feel good. They feel like they, they did something great. Um, a lot of women get inspired by it. I feel like it's a much more spiritual experience. Um, also because I'm there with them. They like a lot of them, you know, open up to me that we, we get to know each other. They talk to me. Um, sometimes there's like Israeli, young Israeli girls who, um, just got married and they're adamant on keeping the mitzvah, but their husband is so not. And, you know, they get to talk to somebody. It's not like a cold experience where you, you walk into the mikvah, you go into the shower, you don't talk to anybody, you, you just dunk and they say kosher. It's kind of like, you know, sometimes I, I have a car ride with them. Sometimes, you know, from the hotel entrance till the ocean, we sit and we talk and they kind of, a lot of times they open up and it's a, it's, it's a very warm experience, I feel. Um, most of the time they come right. out and they say that, you know, it was beautiful and I, you know, it's, it's nice for me too. Well, you're very warm. So I think that probably is part of what, um, probably informs it a little bit. And you have some brides, I'm assuming, right? Cause people do, um, people do the destination weddings and stuff in Cancun. Yes. Yes. Weddings are always beautiful because, uh, they'll bring their whole family. I once had like a whole entire bus show up to the beach. That was incredible. The bride will go and then we'll come out and I'll do a ceremony with them, which is also so beautiful. Um, I once did it in a cenote. I don't know if you know what a cenote is. No. A cenote is like a natural spring of water. They have like these caves over here. But Cheva, have you ever been to any of the cenotes? I don't think so. Now I have something to look forward to next time I go. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this, it's like a sort of like a cave and there's water and it goes really, really, really deep. So I once did a bride there and it was just so amazing. She was under that water for a really long time. It was beautiful. What made you decide to do that? She wanted it. She was from the area. She was a bride from our community. And she wanted to do it in a cenote, and she made it happen. Wow. That so was she, like, snorkeling cool. down there? Yeah. I mean, there's there's fish in there and everything. Uh, so there's a resident, uh, like, Orthodox community in Cancun? I wouldn't say Orthodox, but um, we definitely have um, a small Jewish community here. It's about 300 Jewish people that live here full time. I mean, you're giving a lot of your time um, to help people with this, right? And I'm assuming you don't charge anything. Is that right? Right. Correct. Um, yeah, it's mostly my nights. You know, a lot of times my husband stays home, he babysits, and um, I go out, and these are my nights. Um, yeah. It's wonderful. I'm going to give a plug, actually, because they're building a mikvah. So if anybody wants to give money oh, wow. to the um, mikvah in Cancun, this is this is your moment. <laughs> Wait, so why are you building a mikvah after describing all of this and how beautiful it is? Yeah, I feel like sometimes I'll, I'll go to the ocean, you know, even when I do have my mikvah, but... For women, like you said, that coming from out of town, the first thing they expect is their regular routine, their regular situation, and you know, for me to have to convince them every time. But um, there's something also about the fact that if I do have a mikvah, there are local women who I would say, hey, you know, now it's like it's hard for me to say, let's go to the ocean, and I'll do it sometimes. Like I've, when I know that a person um, is in need of something, I'll be like, hey, let's go to the mikvah. But it's much easier when it's a beautiful spa-like situation to have people come. But I, I think I will definitely like, even if there's brides, I'll be like, Hey, do you want to do it in the ocean? Because it is, it is a really special experience. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Sometimes in the winter, it does get super windy mm -hmm. and cold. And for me, that's not an issue. Like I know I'm committed. I will go no matter what, but some women will say, you know what? I'll just go when I get home. And that kind of makes me really sad. So um, to have a, a mikvah that c can be warm, that women can come to, no matter if it's like windy or cold or anything like that, that's really important for me also. Like I never oh, I never oh, want to be the catalyst of somebody like saying, oh, I'll just wait till I get home. I always like, no, no, come, I'll take you. I, I promise it's good. Yeah. I mean, oh. also it does rain sometimes in Cancun. Mm. Like I've been in Cancun when it's torrential downpours and you do not want to go into the ocean in the mikvah then. Mm. So I think having a mikvah is a good idea, but the ocean does seem like a good option. Anyway, what would you say is your best mikvah in the ocean story? Wow. Just to choose one? No, you can tell us more than one, Rachel. <laughs> one, one of your best. One of my best. Well, um, the local community is really special to me. And um, just the first thing that pops out into my head is um, we've had women here that have been struggling to have children. And um, one of them, 
um, I'm not going to say her name, obviously. She had one child and, and she was trying for a second. And I kept saying, hey, like, you know, come, let's go to the mikvah. You know, it'll you know bring blessings to your marriage. And she was like, hey, Rach, you know, I don't believe in this stuff. I'm not religious. I don't, you know, I'm not really into this kind of stuff. And she kept telling me no. And I'm not the type of person to push. But, you know, when it's somebody that you're close to and you really think that it'll make a difference, like it's so important. Um, but I really stopped asking her because she was like, it's not my thing. And then I saw an article somewhere about the Chabad Shlucha in Nepal who had taken somebody in the similar situation who was um, waiting for children. And they went like over a mountain, a river. It was like a whole story. I don't remember the details now. And I, you know, I was like, I'm going to send her the article. And I sent her the article and I said, I promise you it's the last time I'm asking. And she's like, you know what, Rach, I'll go. And so I, I took her to the ocean and it was really beautiful. Um, like I said, she's a local, so it, it meant a lot to me that she that she went. And a few months later, she told me, and I wasn't here, it was the summer, and she told me, um, you know, Rachel, I'm pregnant. When you get back, I'll tell you the whole story. And when I got back, she tells me, she sits me down and she says, you know, actually, when you took me to the mikvah, I was actually already pregnant. And she figured she would do it as a, like an additional blessing for the pregnancy because she has a difficult time um, for the, the uterus to hold and things like that. And so she said, you know, I'll, like in her head, she was like, you know, this is only going to make it a greater blessing and it'll help. The next morning she went to the doctor and the doctor told her um, there's no heartbeat. And she said, it can't be like I just last night. I like sacrificed, I, I did everything that she told me to. We, you know, we went to the ocean, we prayed, like all these things, like it can't be. And the doctor gave her these pills to, um, to abort the baby and she didn't take them. She, she, her husband wasn't in town, whatever it was, she wanted to call her doctor in California, like she didn't end up taking the pills. And she said a week later, she woke up and there was like blood around her and she said, Okay, like it just happened naturally. So she went back to the doctor and the doctor put on the ultrasound and right there was a beautiful, healthy heartbeat. Hmm. And for me, that was like the fact that, you know, she said it was because of the mikvah meant so much to me. Like it was so beautiful. And now she has this beautiful baby boy and he's like so cute. He's already three years old and it's just like a blessing every time I see him. So that's like the first, you know, story that really sticks out in my head. But there, ha there have been tourists also who have told me like I'm trying and then nine months later they'll send me a picture of their baby and it's like amazing. Um, you know, someone once texted me, I don't think she was trying to get pregnant and then she did. She's like, you're a miracle maker. <laughs> like, things like that. In the way beginning, in the way beginning, like in our first year here, there was a woman who came from Denver. And she had brought me something from the Chabad rabbi there, and I wanted to gift her. And I gave her a bottle of tequila. And she, she went back home, and it was, it was very hard for her to come. It was raining that day. But she was also, she was trying to have a baby. And so she made a, an effort to make it happen. And she took the tequila back home, to, back to her hotel, to her husband. And she's like, what are we going to do with this? Like, we don't drink tequila. And he told her, we're going to serve it at our baby's bris. And then um, a while later, she sent me she sent me an email. She was like, you know, I want to just we had the we had the tequila out at the table at the bris. Wow. It's so inspiring for me, you know, also also to be able to when women come and you see they're young and, and they're just starting out on this journey. It's nice to show them the beautiful part of, of keeping the mikvah because not everyone sees it at such a young age. When you're first married, it's very difficult. And it's nice to be able to, like, impart the, the beauty of it to, to other women. hundred percent. Those are such, such amazing stories. It's so good to talk mm. to you. I wish you lived closer, but I'm glad you're in Cancun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually at the beach now with my kids. I went into the car to do this interview. Rub it in, Rachel. Rub it in. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. My pleasure. Next up, the final word. But first, this quick word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Rabbi Eliezer Lawrence, and I'm a certified Mohel serving the New York metropolitan area. I work with Jewish families and conversion candidates of all identities, affiliations, and orientations, both within the Orthodox community and beyond. 
With the sense of uncertainty that we face during this pandemic, you need to feel certain that your baby is in safe hands. My practice is built on ethos of the highest standard of safety and sterility, as well as a deep spirituality for both family and guests. I am proud to have been a key advocate in working with community leadership to ensure clear safety guidelines for Brit Mila during the coronavirus. For more information about me or my practice, you can visit my website, familymohel.com, or give me a call at 201-694-1801. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast, stay safe, and b'sha'at tova. So here we are for the final word. Uh, so we we got a really, really sweet testimonial about Rabbi Linzer in this week. So we wanted to read that. And attached to it is a really important question, which also deserves to be addressed. So here is our listener comment slash question. I have never met Rabbi Linzer, but listened to the joy of text and Parshan progress. He seems like the nicest and sweetest man in the entire world. He I, is. Uh, I wanted to say that. He really is. He is the nicest and sweetest uh, man. And then she says, I love, quote unquote, visiting with him several times a month. Thank you all for, for all of your work and efforts. So that was the really sweet comment about Rabbi Linzer. Yeah, and well we deserved. All love. Thank you. Um, and then her question is, it's possible you did an episode on this, but if not, I would like to hear a discussion regarding women who labor and are postpartum having the status of Nida. After having my second child, I felt incredibly alone, and all I wanted was for my husband to hold my hand and say everything is going to be okay. It took a real toll on my mental health that I could not touch my husband during this time. It was so bad that it made me feel like this area of halacha is just plain cruel. I'm sure that there is more that I'm not aware of, but could you please discuss the the halachot regarding harchakot postpartum and mental health? I know that I'm not the only woman who feels that this causes isolation. Thank you. And so now the really, really nice man. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that you wrote in because we did an episode on that. It was, I think, season two, episode three. But it's uh, it's really needs to be readdressed on a regular basis because a lot of people suffer the same way she did. And the short version is is that uh, halacha, you know, poskim who are strict, I think, don't appreciate a difference between uh, supportive touch and sexual touch. And once you appreciate that difference and you realize that non-sexual touch is permitted if somebody is sick or suffering, then it should be obvious that it's permitted in this case. So that's the short version um, of the episode, but it's a season two, episode three. And yeah. the name of the episode is? is the childbirth episode. So you can you can still find that on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. Um, so happily, you have a whole a whole of 25 minutes on the topic to listen to. And good luck. And we're thinking about you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much to our guest, Rebison Rachel Druke. This episode of The Joy of Text was recorded by Mike Hurst, was produced and edited by Max Hollander, and is a project of the Lindenbaum Center at YCT. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can do so anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org and keep those comments coming. We really love them. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show your support by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 